If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch. But just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Bog bodies bring us face to face with the past. These amazingly preserved human remains, which survive from wetland areas across northwestern Europe, allow us to gaze directly at the faces of prehistoric and early historic people. But how should we understand these bodies, and what are the ethics of studying them? Our content director, David Musgrove, spoke to bog body expert Dr. Melanie Giles to find out more. Today I am joined by Dr Melanie Giles, who is Senior Lecturer in Archaeology at the University of Manchester and author of an excellent recent book entitled Bog Bodies Face to Face with the Past. So Mel, thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Um, So first question, what is a bog body? A bog body is a set of human remains that have ended up preserved in peat. They might be in uh, what we call a raised mire, which is in a lowland context, um, or they might be hidden in the peat um, in more of a mountainous context. Um, And they're found really across northwestern Europe. Wherever you find peat growing, you will often find some human remains hidden in those bogs. And so... uh... Is it the conditions of deposition and uh, that makes them survive? Then it's, it's the wet nature of the of the ground that uh, makes these bodies survive. Yes, there are a number of um, features that come together. First of all, you've got a very cold environment, um, and so that tends to inhibit decay. The body doesn't really start decomposing. And those bogs also exclude oxygen, so they're very good at keeping the body in a preserved state. But the magic really comes from the properties of the peat itself. They form a complex um, sphagnic acid that interacts with anything organic, um, human remains, um, hide and leather, and all sorts of other substances, um, to uh, effectively preserve them, to tan them. And it's that um, particular peaty reaction with organic material, which means that we see these wonderfully preserved bodies um, with all of their skin and muscle and some of their clothing attached, um, which is very different from the normal skeletonized remains we uncover as archaeologists. And that and that is it, isn't it? It's the kind of the tanned, smothered, squashed but recognisable faces that that you can see that that gives them the power and and I guess makes them such a uh, such such an important source for for archaeology and and also just you know brings people into into the topic. 
So yes, they, they are often a little bit squashed because of course the peat and the water is very heavy um, uh, on top of the bodies. So we do often see that they're a little bit flattened um, uh, and um, we have to try and reconstruct some of those bodies. Some of them are better preserved than others and it's amazing how tiny differences in the bog can result in the preservation of some bits of the body very well um, and other bits that aren't so well preserved. So it's a, a bit of a matter of luck exactly what we get. So um, in terms of the, the chronology, uh, I'm thinking about archaeological periods, it's kind of it's the later Bronze Age through to uh, to the Roman period that, that, that we're, we're talking about, is that right? Well, to be honest, we have bog bodies from many different eras. Bogs uh, and peat really start growing in the Neolithic period. Um, there's a particular wet period in the later Bronze Age um, when those bogs grow at a, a much faster rate than they ever have before. And that's probably why people in later prehistory are a little bit concerned about them and are showing them a bit more care and attention because they're effectively swallowing productive land. And some of them um, are, are quite animate. There are things that happen there that may seem mysterious or magical. Um, so we have some formal burials in the Bronze Age, but during the Iron Age in particular, we start to see a lot more human remains entering the bog, particularly in places like Denmark and Ireland and Scotland. Um, we also then see some uh, Roman burials. We have quite a lot of Roman bog bodies, but they seem to be more formal places to inter the dead, whereas other stuff is going on, as we'll talk about in the Iron Age. Um, but these are dangerous places. And so we also have bog bodies from the medieval period and historic times. And they're much more likely to be accidents, people trying to cross the bog and not making it, um, dying of exposure or falling into the bog and not being able to get out. So actually, some of those very um, recent bog bodies um, can be equally important for us as archaeologists in terms of insights into clothing and people's lives during those later periods. The most recent bog body that was discovered was um, was that of a downed Luftwaffe um, air pilot who obviously hoped to make a soft landing in the bog, but again, unfortunately, didn't make it. Um, so, you know, some of those bog bodies can be really quite recent in date. Thank you. And, and as you said, the, the geographical distribution, uh, it's, we've got Britain and Ireland and then northwestern Europe. So Sweden, Denmark, Germany, Poland, Netherlands, those sorts of places where, where we're getting this uh, bog, this peat bog growth. Yes, wherever you've got peat bogs growing, you often find interesting things in them. And of course, in a place like Britain, we've got lots of wetland areas in the Cambridgeshire Fens where we've got peat, um, the Somerset Levels. Um, but it's particularly in the northwest of the British Isles and then further north, Scotland and the Midlands of Ireland, that we find our bog bodies. And we'll, we'll come to these uh, as, as we have this discussion. But what, what are, gives us a sense of some of the most famous examples of bog bodies? What, what are the ones that people might have heard of? Well, if you Google it, you'll probably come up with um, an image of one of the most famous bog faces, which really is one of the points of inspiration for my research, and that's the face of Tolland Man. He comes from Siekeberg Museum in Denmark. He was found not far away from that town. Um, and then the other famous bog body that a lot of people would have known about was Graubala Man. And both of those um, ancient remains were written about by a very famous Danish archaeologist called P.V. Glob. And it was his book I read when I was about eight years old because my father was a school teacher and introduced me to them. And I was gripped. I was fascinated by their story. But if you live in Britain, you might be much more familiar with the face of Lindo Man, who uh, currently resides in the British Museum, but comes from the Cheshire Mosses. Yeah, and I've I, I've always wanted to go and see Tolland Man, and uh, I've never had an opportunity yet. But uh, but but maybe after COVID, um, be able to. Have. It, it really doesn't disappoint. I mean, the way in which he's displayed is really very special and very moving. Um, and and the subtitle of the book, "Coming Face to Face with the Past," is very much inspired by that um, very privileged sense of encounter you have with the face of somebody from just over 2,000 years ago. And it's partly the scientific evidence we can gain from such a body, 
But it's also something about that slightly magical encounter with somebody from so long ago that puts us so closely in touch with our past. We'll come back to the question of presentation and uh, and uh, and sort of the ethics of that uh, later on in the discussion. If that's okay. Can, can we go back to um, to to, uh, to when bog bodies start to be rediscovered? So we talked a little bit about when they might have been uh, put into the ground or, or, or found their way into the ground. But when when do people start to to find bog bodies again, and what sort of response uh, was elicited um, when when they were discovered? Well, to be honest, for as long as people have been cutting peat, they've probably been encountering special things in the bog. Um, but the first records we have of that really come from around about the 17th and 18th century, when we start to see people keeping diaries and letters reporting their discoveries. Um, uh, we know from some earlier accounts that people are encountering um, these remains, probably in the medieval period, where they're probably more likely to interpret them as, as quite sacred bodies, because in their minds, a body that does not decay is incorruptible and therefore perhaps particularly potent and sacred. Um, but the first written accounts of those uh, discoveries in the more historic era come from these surgeons or rectors um, who are presented with these remains or landowners whose um, peat diggers come across them and are, are quite terrified perhaps by what they find. And it's at that moment that we start to see more fulsome records of such finds. Mm. I was fascinated by that point in, in the book you made about uh, the medieval sort of dialogue about saintly incorruptible bodies and how how these the, the sort of the levery bog bodies might might fit into that dialogue. It's, it's a very interesting uh, uh, line of attack, I think. Yes, and I think that was one of those surprises to me that that. Um, you know, you see these glimpses in some of the poems about these marvellous bodies. Of course, they're lost to us now, but um, they must have been phenomenon that you were trying to understand within the ideology of the day. And the other marvellous bodies you would encounter were the bodies of saints. Um, and your failure to decay was seen as a kind of blessing by God. Um, so they are often given this story of an incorruptible, um, saintly body. Um, and one of the earliest accounts I think we have of a of a marvellous body, probably more from a, a sarcophagus or a tomb, um, gives us that sense of, um, in the poem of St. Erkenwald, of a, a, an apparently Iron Age preserved body who speaks to the present about the fact that they're caught in limbo and they need um, God's intervention in order to move on into um, a, another world. And a, a kind of post-mortem baptism is performed when the bishop weeps over their remains and manages to to, um, to effectively release them from that purgatory. Um, but other people have very different interactions and ideas about them, certainly by the historic period. Some were appalled. They were aghast at a body that had failed to decay. And that too was troubling. So some of the ideas around the, the walking dead or the revenant um, probably started haunting some of those other bog bodies by the 17 and 1800s. Mm, okay. Um, so uh, before we get into talking uh, in too much depth about the bog bodies themselves, one of the themes of your book is to try to put these bodies into context and try to explain what was going on in these wetland areas. So can you give us a sense about that? What were people doing in, in bogs and moors in prehistory? Why were they there and what sort of activities were they uh, were they engaging in? Well, when we think about bogs, we, we think of them as cold and wet and dangerous places. Um, and, and they were and they are. But um, to prehistoric people, they would have seen a world of resources that they were mining. Um, uh, there's woodlands around the fringe from which they're getting materials for basketry um, and all sorts of organic containers and vessels. Um, the uh, bogs themselves are a source of peat, which we know that they're cutting for fuel. We have some tiny turf bricks that have been made in the Hebrides, um, dating to the late Bronze Age. And although um, it's perhaps uh, an unfashionable fuel uh, for good reason right now, it burns with this kind of aromatic smoulder and it would have heated prehistoric households for anyone who lived in and around the bog. Uh, and the Roman authors talk about people in the Netherlands actually doing this. So, so we know it's common across those communities before the Romans invaders. Um, but one of the other things they're going into the bog particularly to get hold of 
is uh, iron ore. Bog ore is probably one of our, our major sources of iron in the Iron Age. Um, so they are winning their ore from the bog. They're taking something away from it, um, along with other substances like sphagnum moss, which, because it is antiseptic, would have been very useful as wound dressings. And in fact, we were cutting bog moss um, in and around Sheffield and Manchester in the First World War to make wound dressings for soldiers who had been brought back from the front because there weren't enough linen dressings for them. It's very absorbent. It's a wonderful natural antiseptic. So the bog is full of materials and resources that um, enrich your life if you live in the Iron Age. But I think it's particularly iron ore, which is very special to them during that era. So, so the bogs were being exploited, the resources were being used, which uh, then tells us there must have been uh, routes into them. There couldn't have been trackless waste. There must have been route ways. And in fact, we, we do know that you know, route ways have been found, haven't we, that within the bogs that, uh, that tell us that they were used. Yes, there are, particularly from Ireland, but also Denmark and the Netherlands, we have some wonderful trackways, some quite lightweight brushwoods with hurdle panels laid across them, um, in Denmark, we have some stepping stones laid carefully around the edge of the bog. But in uh, places like Corlay in um, the Midlands in Ireland, we have fantastic laid plank trackways, apparently running out right into the middle of the bog itself. And these really are still a bit of a conundrum. Um, Barry Raftery talked about them as the road to nowhere. And they tell us of the effort and the labour that people were going to, to make a road into the bog. And often these didn't last long. They were submerged by the peat really quite quickly because it was growing. The water level was rising, the peat was growing over them. So it's a great amount of investment. It tells us about a desire to get out into the bog, um, perhaps because you weren't just taking things from it, you were taking things to give back to it. Mm. And uh, we're going to talk about it in just a second, but I mean, one of the, that is one of the beauties of... of uh, of these wetland areas is that uh, woodland uh, uh, wood survives as well as the bog body. So that's why we know, you know, the Colair track, it's a wooden track, it survives because it's been submerged and the conditions, the anaerobic conditions mean that the actual, the timbers are, are still there for us to see today. So that's a, a fantastic survival, isn't it? Yes, and sometimes it's it's not just the trackways, it's the chips of wood, it's the mallets, it's the um, little pegs they've been using, um, uh, which we find just to the side of them. And it, and it gives you a really visceral sense of people at work um, just laying down their things. Um, uh, and, and I love that sense of being very close to um, people's labour in the past. Okay, so let's let's go back to the point you just made about um, people putting things into the bogs as well as taking them out. So, uh, deposition of things into into these wetland areas. Tell us about that. What what do we know about that? Well, we find all sorts of other things in the bog besides human remains, and often that's quite um, distinct to a region or a district or a country. So. For example, in Sweden, we find a lot of animal offerings, sometimes um, animals with, you know, tethered to a post with large clubs by their side. Um, in uh, a place like Ireland, we find uh, a much greater range of weaponry, um, shields, um, uh, the occasional uh, sword blade, um, cauldrons, um, but also in both Ireland and Scotland, a very special substance called bog butter often beautifully presented in a churn or um, or a vessel. Um, and some of that may have been meant as a kind of cold storage. Some people have suggested this is a deliberate way of um, uh, keeping butter safe from raiders and perhaps using the bog as a bit of a larder um, uh, just to safeguard against dearth at, at times of crisis. Um, but there are too many of these to be simply kind of, you know, um, churns of butter that people forgot to go and get. Um, they seem to be offerings in their own right. And some of them are in beautifully decorated vessels or vessels that are already quite old when they go into the bog. So food offerings, joints of meat um, uh, uh, and other objects are also placed in the bog. Um, musical instruments are another object we find. So again, in Ireland, um, but also uh, up in Scotland, a very special instrument called the Deskford Carnix was found um, broken up and deposited in a small bog. This seems to be the right place in which to leave things that had uh, reached the end of their life. 
And in many of those areas, we also see elements of vehicles, wagons or chariots, um, bits of horse gear, things that by the Iron Age were quite worn and old and cherished. But again, it seems like this is the right place to end their lives and give them over to a kind of sacred or supernatural realm. So to be clear, you don't think they're just chucking stuff away. Um, they are deliberately putting it in, into, into these wetland areas. No, this is this is not a throwaway culture. Um, most of those things could become something else. You could melt them down, the bronze work, and make it into something new. You could chop up the wood and use it as firewood. Um, uh, giving over an animal as a sacrifice is a, is a great gift because every bit of that animal had a purpose in Iron Age communities. Um, its hide, its horns, its flesh its blood, you know, all of those would have been used. Um, so when we see these things given over, I think it tells us that they were meant to be offerings. And that places the human remains within a kind of realm of offerings or sacrifices of which they might be the absolute epitome, the best a community could offer, though that that's disturbs us somewhat in terms of that attitude towards um, the offering of, of a life. So does so this um uh, you introduce in your book the the concept of of the thin place the fact the idea that these wetland areas might have been uh, thin places where the supernatural realm was made manifest and where you were closer to 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 something something else the the other um, is that part of, of the picture is that is that what we're, what we're seeing what you're describing I think so there, there are obviously in prehistoric worlds you look for the places where um, the supernatural might be met with. And for Iron Age people, we think there was a sense in which the whole world might have been inhabited by all sorts of small deities or supernatural beings. But there would have been places where that was felt more deeply. And water seems to be incredibly important, whether that's a big river like the Thames or the Witham within um, England, or whether that's these bogs in, a, in a, the wetland areas. And I think the reason why they might have felt very close to something sacred or powerful is that they have peculiar properties. Um, the bog is, a, is an animate place. It does grow. It does swell in, uh, in wet weather. It can occasionally burst to devastating effect. Um, and we know in the past, one of the things people encountered on the bog was the will-o'-the-wisp, the, the, or the corpse light or ghost light, um, uh, the ignus fetus, um, uh, a kind of wispy, bluish flame that was glimpsed um, dancing over the bog water. So there may have been, uh, you know, encounters with these kind of phenomenon that gave people to believe that these were places inhabited by all sorts of sprites and spirits. And so these cold, still pools of water which reflected back your appearance and reflected back the sky, must have been quite intimidating but special places to go to. And rather like some of the big lakes in Wales or Scotland, they seem to have attracted people to go to them as the right place to give over an offering to the gods. So having contextualised the places where, where the, the bog bodies have been found and, and, and sort of thought about the way that perhaps these areas were understood and used by prehistoric peoples, how does that help us to understand the circumstances in which the bodies themselves ended up in the bogs? Well, one of the things I think that we can do now, which we couldn't do, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, was use our whole suite of archaeological skills to look not just at the manner of their death, but the life they've led before they've got there. And with some of our bog bodies, we can see that they haven't had a particularly good life. Um, they might have not been very well. They might have um, occasionally had a, a disability or an impairment. Um, which um, some archaeologists have suggested might have led to them being singled out as a kind of scapegoat figure. They're a convenient um, marginal character in society upon whom you can heap all your ills and offering them to the gods may have been a way of kind of excising or expelling bad luck from your community or making an offering of a of a life that was seen as slightly less valued in some way, slightly less human, um, even though that appalls us to think of that. 
um, and that they could be treated like a sacrificial offering. Um, but at the other end of the scale, we have quite a lot of bog bodies who seem to come from the other end of society, people who've had good diets, they're healthy, they are um, you know, they're beautiful. Some of them are massive figures. Um, uh, Cloney Cavern Man in Ireland, for example, is much taller than the average Iron Age man. He's got massive, powerful hands and a muscular torso. These are figures that seem to come right from the top ranks of society. And that would suggest to me something rather different. Um, uh, some of my Irish colleagues, um, like Ned Kelly, have suggested you might actually be looking at a kind of kingly figure, um, somebody who uh, was in a position of power in society. And if things weren't going well, you might have to kind of usher out that um, that realm of power um, and, and give them to the gods in order to inaugurate a new king. So he sees these as kind of failed leaders who must be put to death in order to create a new era of prosperity. Um, but I think there's also another possibility there that some of these individuals were people who were very skilled already at intervening with supernatural forces, um, talking to the gods, and that perhaps at a time of crisis, um, the ultimate sacrifice was asked of you, that you go yourself as an emissary to those gods. Um, and you, you know, if you believe in an afterlife, taking a step into that world is merely the next step on your path um, and also an assured path to a kind of noble afterlife where you are then amongst the spirit realm, speaking with them and interceding on behalf of your community. So one of the things I, I think it's important to do with every bog body is to tease apart the life they've lived, the circumstances of their death, and, and, and it's important to look at that violence and think about how their death happened, in order to tell rather different stories about each of these bog bodies. They all have their own story hidden within them. And our job really is to do justice to the whole realm of possibilities behind their final fate in the bog. So I guess um, we can't really generalise. We can't. There isn't a one specific reason that explains why all these bog bodies uh, are there. Actually, one thing we haven't talked about, how, how many bog bodies are we talking about? What is the... What's the um, extent of the uh, archive? Well, there are there are hundreds of bog bodies known from across northwestern Europe, um, but um, only a few of those survive as actual human remains. And sadly, anything that was really found much before the nineteen um, fifties uh, or the nineteen sixties was not something that we could conserve. So some of them were air dried or wind dried or smoked even or tanned. Um, uh, so some of them only survive as, as rather dried out, desiccated remains in museum basements or even skeletonized um, elements. In the past, it wasn't thought that this was an appropriate thing to be keeping. So many of them were thrown away or reburied in Christian ground. It was thought that these were bodies that needed Christianizing. And so we have a lot of paper records which tell us about many more bog bodies than um, we we know of archaeologically um, that sadly kind of ended up in the hands of the local priest um, and were uh, given a Christian burial. And of course, then time begins its work again and many of those bodies just simply decayed once they were in normal ground. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He dies violently from um, a series of wounds um, a sword blow to uh, the back of the head, just behind the ear. Um, a massive, devastating axe blow to the top of the head. That was probably fatal. Um, we did think he might have been garroted, rather like Lindo Mann, but that's turned out to just be a bit of his own um, neck tissue. Um, uh, and the head is then decapitated from the body and placed in this bog. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. 
The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. So we've come up with some ideas about what might have happened. So you mentioned that some of them might have been accidents, particularly the later ones. You mentioned the, the, the Luftwaffe pilot, for instance. Um, we've got the idea of self-sacrifice, um, possibly, or, or a sacrifice from, from another party. Um, just a general burial. What about uh, something more nefarious? What about ones that are perhaps murders or, or acts of violence? Is there evidence for that? Yes, there is. And again, that's stronger perhaps in the historic period when, you know, we have made these places marginal. Once we start to enclose and improve the land, the bogs really do become the fringe of society. And like many other areas of wasteland um, or isolated ground that's not routinely inhabited or used anymore, they become a good place to hide a body. So we do know that some people probably were taken there because somebody wanted to get rid of a crime. Um, uh, We know that these were places where people may even have arranged a liaison, a meeting, in order to dispatch someone. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that some of our bog buddies are the result of those, um, uh, you know, small acts of interpersonal violence, um, jealousies, rivalries, um, uh, the loss of somebody's temper. We have a um, a young man from the historic period who we think was the murder victim of a falling out between friends who were supposed to be there together. So, so some of those bodies are the results of crimes. Some of them, sadly, may also be the results of suicides. If you don't live around a large flowing river um, and you decide to take your own life and you can't swim, then the bog becomes the place to go to. Um, And so again, when we find such bog bodies, we need to treat them with extreme reverence and care because whatever the circumstances behind their loss, their story needs to be told and and deserves to be brought to mind. So I'm always mindful of that when when we're dealing with any new case study. Um, For people who were um, dealing with a mysterious death, um, who felt that for whatever reason, that body couldn't go into Christian ground. And we know in the historic period, the church was particularly churlish about who it chose to bury and where. Then again, the bog became another place where you could inter the dead. So sometimes the bog becomes your alternative sacred space, um, even if you you have a Christian faith, to place a, a dangerous or a, an excluded body. Um, so all of these are possibilities. Um so this idea of of bogs being uh, sort of marginal fringe areas that that it, that's come to us more recently. It's quite different to the uh, to the contextual um, uh, outline you 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 described for for prehistory. My PhD was in uh, medieval reclamation in the Somerset levels, and that that was um, that was definitely you know a sense of. Uh, let's uh, let's let's try and improve this land. Let's take it from the wetland and let's make it uh, make it productive arable land. Uh, but there but there was also a sense that they were they still wanted to exploit it. But does that sense that we've kind of our our understanding of wetland areas has moved? Is that has that led to uh, a different way of understanding bulk bodies as well? Is like is is it has our assumption always been that oh then there must be some nefarious purpose here behind it? And it's only recently, perhaps as we start to look at, you know, rewilding being a good thing, that we start to, to, to take a different approach. Yes, I think when when we start to say that, you know, a peat bog is a bad thing, um, it's because the people saying that, writing that, they don't need the bog in the same way that local communities needed it. So the peat is something to be got rid of because coal has come. You don't see it as a fuel. You don't need it for your personal household fire. And so the notion that it's to be cut, got rid of, and so you remove it, get down to the good land, improve that land and make it cultivatable. That's that's a really quite recent conversation to have around our landscapes. And of course, the more people were 
doing that to the bogs, the more they were disappearing, the tiny wet pockets that were left became these little marginal areas around which fringe communities gathered. Um, They could live there, dwell there, make a living in ways that were no longer possible once a lot of the common land had gone from them. And so the stories that are told around those um, surviving bogs and the bog communities are really very pejorative. They, They write about them as if they're Um, barbaric savages, hangovers from prehistory, more or less. Um, And, you know, there are some really harsh um, uh, commentaries, um, you know, particularly around the Irish and and their bogs, um, which suits us to tell a story of barbarity, of bog dwellers. And that's simply not the case. It's people making a living where they can't make a living elsewhere. Um, So once we start improving them and re-encountering things from the bog, um, it takes a while before we start finding silver cauldrons in Denmark or beautiful, you know, hide shields and swords from Ireland. And it's antiquarians who begin to say, wow, that these are extraordinary, partly because they're untarnished. They are beautiful objects, you know, far superior to many of the objects being found by early archaeologists anywhere else. So they start to crop up in our museum collections and people start to think differently about these places as places of sacred activity in prehistory. And that goes hand in hand with the development of our discipline itself, where we begin to cherish them as as archives of archaeology. And I think it's, you know, it has taken us decades to persuade people that that image of the bog needs to be rethought. Um, We now know that all of that work of clearing the peat has been to our detriment. Um, These are wonderful carbon repositories. Um, The bogs across the world globally hold more carbon in them than all the woodland and forestry. So we need to care more for wetland places. We need to tend them, to re-wet them. That's a complex business. Um, and it is, you know, we've lost many of the skills we once had to know how to manage them well. And of course, they now have people living all around them um, who who don't know how to, uh, you know, to live well around wet places. Um, and uh, it means a real sea change in our attitude towards them if they are going to be part of our response to contemporary climate change. Mm, no, that's a very interesting point. And, and maybe bog bodies will, will sort of play a part in that in that response T- tell me um before we come come to an end tell me about Worsley man and and the uh the way that we can now study bog bodies with, with the full array of, of sort of scientific techniques and um and and even go so far as to like a cold case forensic study on them well when I went for my interview at University of Manchester, I wandered into the museum, as you do if you're going to take up an archaeology position, and I was absolutely stunned to see the bog head of Worsley Mann in a museum case. Um, And um, I've been very privileged to be drawn into a long-term study of this head that was found in the 1950s by a peat digger on Astley Moss, part of the Chapmocks complex. Um, he was originally treated as a police case, a forensic case, before they realised that they got something older on their hands. But then he became a mere specimen in a pathology lab in a little perspex box. And it was really only the Lindo discoveries that re- made us realise that we had something much more special on our hands. And a research project by Professor John Prague began to explore his life and, and, and his fate. Um, And I've been part of that long-term study where now we've been able to do um, um, high-resolution CT scanning. We've used um, isotope analysis on his hair, um, uh, radiocarbon dating, um, and forensic analysis to piece together this man's last moments and understand the historical context in which he died. And actually, his story is a, a slightly different one from the ones I've just evoked for you. He comes from probably around about the second century AD. So that is the time of the Roman occupation of the north of Britain. There are troops on the ground. They've been there for, you know, 
50, 60 years, and they keep coming and going. They're off to, you know, the Hadrian's Wall, Antonine Wall, they're staffing different forts. Mamukium, the Roman fort, is sometimes occupied with soldiers and then sometimes not. Um, so it must have been a time of great change in these um, uh, Manchester and Cheshire communities um, when tribal identity and tribal politics and power relationships were all in flux. You know, if the Romans were there, you know, forces on the ground, you might benefit if you were trading or dealing with them, but then there would have been a power vacuum when they disappeared. Now, at the moment, we still don't know who quite who he is. What we can say is that he um, is di- he dies violently from um, a series of wounds, um, a sword blow to uh, the back of the head, just behind the ear, um, a massive, devastating axe blow to the top of the head. That was probably fatal. Um, we did think he might have been garroted, rather like Lindo Man, but that's turned out to just be a bit of his own um, neck tissue. Um, Uh, And the head is then decapitated from the body and placed in this bog. Now, I have my suspicions because um, uh, we have a wonderful piece of sculpture from Lancaster um, commemorating an auxiliary soldier. So somebody from the northern tribes who signed up to, to serve in the Roman army who finds himself marching north in Britain and his job is to subdue any tribal um, uh, insurgents. And um, he dies in service and a tombstone is erected to him. And it's a really, it's what we call the triumphant rider tombstone. It's him on horseback, wielding his sword um, and his horse is trampling a native underfoot. And in his hand, he is brandishing a head that he has just severed from a local. Now, we're told the Romans don't really go in for that, that they outlaw this kind of practice. But uh, a, a Roman citizen might think it a little bit uncouth, but the auxiliary soldiers who've signed up to serve in the army come from places like Gaul um, and other regions where headhunting and trophy taking has been a long-term part of how you display your prowess as a warrior. And those habits probably die a little bit hard. So this figure gives us an indication that decapitation and, and trophyism may well have been part of the unfortunate experiences that our northern tribes suffered under the um, the hand of Rome. But the obverse is also true. If they're doing it to the natives, the natives are probably doing it to the Romans. So we're just waiting still for a little bit more evidence to see if we can tell anything about this man's diet from the little bit of um, uh, facial hair that we've got from the body. And that might tell us about somebody who's either moved into the area quite recently or been living elsewhere or, or has grown up locally. Whatever, Whoever he is, his head is then gathered up and taken to this very special place. So whether it is a trophy head taken by a Roman who is beginning to understand what it is to live in this world and where to put such trophies and thanksgivings to the gods of war, or whether it's a local who's making a point about somebody who's had to die. You know, this could be a local execution of a murderer or a cattle thief, uh, for all I know, but that head has to go in that bog, and that we know is part of a much longer indigenous tradition about finding the right place to inter human remains. And it goes in the bog quickly after that death happens. So um, there are still mysteries to find out about Worsley Man, um, but we've um, gone a little way along the, the path of telling a richer story about his death in the context of the Roman occupation of the North. And, and the, the scientific techniques you described there are fascinating, aren't they? And perhaps will open up more avenues in the future. Just to be clear, so is it? It's just the head. The body wasn't wasn't deposited. It's just the head. When when he was found, an extremely diligent search was made by the police because they they were under the impression they were dealing with a recent murder, and that is one of the advantages of that forensic approach to archaeological discoveries. Um, There are newspaper reports about um, treasure and and a hoard of gold um, that were apparently flying around the local villages at the time. So there's part of me that wonders whether something else was found and not reported, like uh, a talk. We have a wonderful pure gold talk in the Manchester Museum from um, Cliviger um, near Burnley. 
And, you know, it's just possible there was something else with that head that wasn't handed in. Um, but I think it's it, it's highly likely the police found all there was. And decapitated heads are a, are a, a thing. You know, we have decapitated heads on Iron Age sites. We have decapitated heads that the Romans put on poles outside of London, you know, and, um, and other Roman cities. It's a way of, you know, it, it's a bit triumphalist it's a way of warning the locals of what happens to you if you don't toe the line in a new era of rule um but we know it's also what local people were doing to show off their their trophies of their enemies so outside the royal site of stanick we have a head that was probably on display outside the 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 gates of that um marvelous fort complex so it's it's a language that everyone understands about um, punishment and um, uh, and and triumph, um, Romans and uh, local indigenous tribes people um, uh, together. If there had been a, a metal talk, a, a neck ring uh, deposited, that would that would change the explanation um, quite radically, I guess, or at least add to add to what you're you're thinking. Yes, because that that would probably tell us this is the symbol of kind of kingship and authority within um, the local groups. And we know that actually this fascination for the talk as a special object, it's something that the Romans also take on. There are the Dinnington talk from Sheffield, which is a real fusion of Roman and kind of Celtic art ideas in one object. So this becomes a very deeply powerful symbol. Um, you know, it's again a, a nice trophy that some of the Romans like taking in Gaul during the Gallic Wars, um, but it becomes a kind of an object of, 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 of great um, fascination um, for Romans coming to live in Britain during that period. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Right, to wrap up, I imagine uh, some of our listeners are thinking, uh, this is all very interesting, um, but what about the ethics here? Um, you know, you're you're subjecting human bodies, human remains to, to scientific analysis. They obviously didn't say that was okay. Um, how do you how do you weave your way through the ethics of of of, uh, of this? And I suppose not just analysing, but also presenting them. Because as you said, you know, one of the big things, one of the most amazing things, is coming face to face with with a with a, a prehistoric or, or Roman period face and being able to to, to look. But um, that it, that in itself, I suppose, presents some ethical dilemmas. Yes, it does. And, and there's been a lot of debate about this, particularly within Britain, um, where I think we've thought long and hard about whether we should show human remains and, and whether that's a good thing to do. Um, and there, um, the, the strength of the neo-pagan community has had a strong voice in these debates. Um, for me as an archaeologist, you know, I am an advocate for the dead. I am their voice and my job is really to tell their story. Now, these bodies are literally turfed up. They are found usually on a peat line um, after they've been milled out of the peat or um, uh, when somebody's been digging a drainage ditch. And often that bog is disappearing around them. We can't simply put them back, rather like a road development scheme. And I might wish things were otherwise, um, you know, but the reality is that um, modern development um, or modern extraction processes take precedence. So our job is really to receive those human remains. And, and what we do next with them, you know, is something we can talk about um, uh, in terms of ways we might do it well. So I think um, my great colleague at the British Museum, uh, Dr. J.D. Hill, once said, you know, don't show a body unless you really need to, unless it does something that you can't do without showing human remains. And yet, in our contemporary society, we don't talk enough of the dead. We don't talk enough about mortality or loss or grief or bereavement. We're so distanced from it it has become a real problem for us. So for many of us, our first encounter with a body would be a museum. And I don't think that's wrong. I think there is a place for that and that that is an important encounter to have and to nurture because if we have that encounter when we're children, we're not scared by it, we're fascinated. It teaches us something about our mortality, our fate, um, and the fact that that's the one certainty of human existence. But if it's done well, it also teaches us about different cultures' attitudes towards it. Um, 
the communities we're looking at, Iron Age communities, handled their dead. They curated their dead. They kept bits of their dead and they carried them round. They did put some of them on poles or some of them on display, but others were kept carefully in boxes or hidden under a flagstone in your roundhouse or by your hearth. So they had an attitude towards interacting with the dead and bits of their bodies, which was much more visceral. And it might shock us, but that's what they felt was appropriate. So I don't think it's wrong to deal with the dead, to handle their remains, to study them. I think their aim was to have stories told around them. And in that sense, what that's what we are. We're storytellers around the lives of the dead and particularly with those who have effectively kind of been disappeared. Some of those disenfranchised lives, we are literally writing them back into history. And I, I think that is an ethical thing to do. But I think, you know, I I acknowledge that there are some people who are uncomfortable about having those encounters and they don't wish to see them. So one of the things that Denmark um, and Ireland, um, particularly the National Museum of Ireland, have done very well recently is to create exhibition spaces where you get the choice as to whether you see those human remains or not. Um, And when you do, the kind of encounter you have is carefully designed. So it's quite private, it's quite reflective, it's devoid of information panels and screens, so that you spend time, you dwell with the dead, and you have that moment of contemplation. And I think there's, there is a real place for that in a contemporary museum. And I do find that respectful. And I think that that is honouring the life they've had, and the death they may have experienced. Um, and in its own way, I, I think that's an ethical and an important thing to do. In the contemporary context and our need to change our relationship with the bog, they're now emissaries or ambassadors in a completely different way. They're emissaries to us to say, we knew these places were special, we knew they really mattered, and we cared for them in our own way. I'm part of that offering. So if we can use the archaeology to inspire us, to reconnect us, to enchant us even, even if we're also appalled by some of the fates they've met, then I think we've done our job. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you for, for, for that. Um, um, we've covered loads of ground here, um, talked about all, this, all sorts of stuff. Um, is there anything um, uh, that, that we haven't chatted about? Any any key points that you'd like to bring up, Mel, that, that, that perhaps I haven't given you a chance to say or any concluding comments? I suppose the, um, the only other thing would be maybe around poetry and creative inspiration. So I think... We can see that inspiration um, in the present through the works of all sorts of artists, um, uh, particularly for us, most famously, the poet Seamus Heaney and his bog poem cycle, where he used the past to talk about violence in the present in a kind of oblique way. Um, But there are many artists and photographers, filmmakers, um, people like Christine Finn, who've um, really brought to the contemporary public a, a richer understanding of those places um, that I think shows us they can be points of inspiration and departure for the future. Um, and it's to those kinds of creative responses that I think archaeology also needs to turn. We need to look forward as well as um, back into the past. Well, Dr. Melanie Giles, uh, thank you very much for your time. The book, Bog Bodies, Face to Face with the Past, is is published now by Manchester University Press. It's a great read, and uh, we'll pick up a lot of these uh, themes we've talked about and go into them in much more detail, um, and I would thoroughly recommend it. So thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. That was Dr. Melanie Giles of the University of Manchester. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman 